0: this morning we will simply look at each one of these phrases one by one and then close with communion and we begin in verse 6 Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped now if you're like me you might enjoy looking at family pictures and if you have children every once in a great while you might actually stumble across a wedding picture of you and your spouse before having kids or children We have such a picture prominently displayed in our hallway, just Heather and I. And not for dieting goals or thin inspiration, it's just there. But I wonder, for a small child to gaze upon that picture and ask the question, where am I? How come I'm not in the picture? Almost to say, what did you ever do without me? And our response to that child would be to say, well, there was a whole life of living before you were ever around. The child cannot simply grasp the idea that everything was already in existence long before they came onto the scene, that their birth did not signify the beginning of time, that there was a love between a husband and a wife for a time that did not include this child. And sometimes we think of our savior, when we think of our savior, when we think of Jesus Christ, we only think of him in relation to people. We think of him and his power, his miracles, his multiplication of food to feed people, calming the raging seas, casting out demons, healing the unhealable. Sometimes we think of his authoritative teaching. We can think of his soft and kind heart, his willingness to tenderly touch even the leper, someone who may not have been touched or felt human touch for years. And we think of the time he spent with the most notorious of sinners, the ones who everyone thought were outside the reach of God's compassion. In grace Jesus simply says I came to call the righteous I came not to call the righteous but the sinners Jesus spent time with the Jew and Gentile rich and poor the religious and the irreligious and there's so much of who he is that we think upon in relation to humanity but brothers and sisters there's a whole life of living long before Christ was found in a manger There is Christ pre-incarnate before there was time, before there was this. Jesus says in John 8, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, for Abraham was, I am. And John opens his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It is the fullness of God's glory before the incarnation And even before the creation Jesus prays in John 17 5 he prays this right before he's arrested right before he goes to the cross and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed the glory I had with you father and here in Philippians Paul is clear about Jesus's identity he is God he is fully God Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. He was in the form of God. All right, it says that in verse 6, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. Now, this is not to be mistaken. Um, the Greek in this text, there's two versions of the word two definitions for the word form we have morphe and schema morphe being a form that cannot change schema being a form that does change it will kinda transition so think of it this way if you have the form in the definition of schema it would be like a baby turning or transitioning to a child to a youth to a young adult to an adult that would be a form of A child growing into a man or a woman and so that would be schema that is a type of form that is the external appearance that we associate with schema but here we have morphe and this form is not external appearance it is the essence it is the very nature of God okay it underlines outward appearance or shape but it's the nature or essence of God. It's what he is within himself. Christ's pre-incarnate existence as the second person of the Trinity. He existed within the beam, the being, excuse me, the form within the full glory of God, and he still does. It was, and it is his possession, it is his right, a oneness and a practical equality with God the Father, enjoying the eternal glory and character of God. Jesus Christ is unalterably and continuously existing in the form of God. Paul writes this to continue the thought. So we pick up here. Jesus Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or grabbed at or seized or clutched onto tightly. The Son of God did not cling to what he had a right to. Christ's very deity wasn't used only for himself. It wasn't used for getting and keeping it to himself and to further his interests and his own advantages. No, his very Godness is used for giving and for the interest of others. This is the mindset of the Son of God, even though he was God and had full glory. This is who Jesus Christ is, and this is what he does. As God, all of his deity is to give and not to get in the incarnation. So we read, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. God the Son emptied himself or made himself nothing. It doesn't mean he emptied himself of being God, because the text doesn't read but emptied himself of being God. And making himself nothing doesn't mean that he ceased to exist. The text says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of men. Christ emptied himself not for the purpose of rendering his deity completely gone. He did not void his glory. He veiled his glory. He added humanity and he didn't surrender his deity. Jesus remained all that he was in his godness and became that which he was not. It is not by subtraction of his divine attributes that Christ emptied himself, but rather the assumption of human nature, fully God, fully man. Jesus Christ also assumes the form of a servant. This is the same word form that we saw here in verse 6. He doesn't take the shape of a servant. He takes on the essence of a slave. This isn't Christ becoming a servant instead of God. This is God, the servant. This is God, the slave. The identity, the Lord of all assumes, is one of slavery. The condescension From the Creator God, the self sufficient Lord, to be born a servant in the likeness of men. This is the lowest class of dignity among all of humanity. Now, I want to say this our highest thoughts, when we think about God, are not high enough. We could ascend to the highest mountain peak and behold creation in all of its majesty and splendor, and never even scratch the height and the glory from which the Lord reigns. Consider with me the speed of light, which travels at, anyone know? 186,202 miles per second. If you could travel at the speed of light, it would take you eight minutes to reach the sun. It would take you 33,000 years to get to the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way. Now, the Milky Way belongs to a group of some 20 galaxies known as the Local Group. To cross the Local Group, you'd have to travel for 2 million years at the speed of light. And the Local Group belongs to the vast Virgo cluster, part of an even larger local supercluster, 500 million years Across. To cross the entire universe as we know it, and I dare say we do not know it, that distance. But for the sake of science, let's call it 20 billion years to what we know right now. Our highest thoughts are not high enough. From our worship text this morning, Psalm 113, verse 4, the psalmist writes, that not only is the Lord high above all nations, but also his glory is above the heavens. 20 billion light years away or more. The psalmist goes on to indicate in verse 6 that God is to stoop down and lower himself to look upon the heavens, let alone to look upon the things on this speck that we call earth. Saints, heaven doesn't get mundane because we get used to God's glory. Heaven does not get boring because we get used to God's glory. That we somehow acclimate to its vastness, that we get used to it. No, his glory is infinite and inexhaustible. And when we come to a text like this, we have to understand the limits of human language where our highest thoughts and modes of communication cannot encapsulate the height From which Christ descended. And our lowest thoughts, brothers and sisters, are not low enough either. The depth to which Christ descends is lower than any point that any of us has ever reached. And we've been through some stuff. I know some of your testimonies. But even our lowest of lows isn't lower than Christ lows. In fact, lowness is a relative term by definition. It's relative to the height from which one descends. If I was to wash someone's dirty feet, if I was to act like a slave, that's an act of humility. If the Lord washes someone's dirty feet, it's even though it's the same action it's much more humble the condescension is measured relative to the height from which one descends to further the thought if i was to wash my wife's feet as a slave an act of condescension it is but not as much as if i wash my enemy's feet again the same action but the act changes son of God washes the sinful Peters feet the feet that he created with the water that he created turn with me to John chapter 13 beginning in verse 3 Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Skipping ahead to verse 12, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The measure of the step down is relative to who he is to what he becomes and to whom he serves who is it that makes himself nothing it is the one coming from the highest of heights and Jesus Christ did not have to do this at all but he did not consider equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage in the incarnation his own gaining His deity here is not a means for getting something, but a means for giving something and a self-sacrificial giving until he is emptied. By taking this upon himself, Christ gives himself as a nobody, a rightless slave who serves. And even more, if there could be more, Paul writes in verse 8, being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here Paul writes, Christ being found in human form, and in verse 7 we see the phrase, born in the likeness of men. This incarnation is so real, God becoming man, is so real that if you or I had met Jesus on the street, we wouldn't think there's anything special about him the Son of God, totally indistinguishable from any other person. All of the experience of humanity is included here. Hebrews 2.17, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet, what? Without sin. All the pains of life, all the relational stress, the physical toll of having to live upon this sinful earth, every kind of temptation that we have to sin, think about the temptations we have to sin. Temptation to lust, to anger, to retaliate, to be greedy, to be worrisome. Be impure, idolatrous, jealous, divisions, drunkenness. A Son of God was not immune to it. His entire life as a human being relative to the height from which he stepped down was an entire life of suffering and attack. Surrounded by hard-hearted people, accusers of the Lord, family disapproval, betrayal by friends, being called the devil by the religious establishment. Christ remains sinless through it all. Obedient to the Father's will through it all. But at its very peak, Paul writes here, Christ's humble obedience is to the point of death, even death on a cross. Crucifixion is the most shameful and loathsome way to die in the first century. It's cruel, it's hideous, it's gruesome. It's the capital punishment Rome reserved for only the lowest class. If you're a slave, if you're a violent criminal, you're eligible for crucifixion. Roman citizens can't be crucified. It's too low for them. It's too degrading for a Roman to die in this way. That type of death is only for the lowest. In polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity. It was a curse word. You wouldn't utter the term cross in polite Roman conversation. A cross was shameful, public, and always coupled with torture. They just didn't put people up on a cross. Their bodies would have already been stripped bare, beaten, and bloodied, and hung on the cross in the most despicable and shameful manner. It was the design of the Romans to crucify individuals publicly and in the most prominent places so that all the people could see it and they would cringe as they would look upon naked and beaten bodies and they would be disgusted by it. It was the death that people would walk by and say, I never want to ever be like that man. That's how the Romans viewed the crucifixion. That's what Jesus endures willingly. Roman perspective. Now here's the Jewish perspective. If anyone was crucified, they interpreted it as being a curse by God. Galatians 3.13 explains the importance of the manner in which Jesus had to die. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is from Deuteronomy 21:22 through 23, which states, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Jesus had to die upon a tree as the one who bore the curse of sin for us. This is a suppression of who Christ is in his deity, but also in his humility. Matthew 26, 53 tells us that Christ could have called 12 legions or 72,000 angels at any given moment to end his suffering. But he did not. Instead, he sweat Drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours, Father. He stilled the raging sea with a single word kind of power. And yet he couldn't even carry his own cross. His own cross all the way to Golgotha. Humility. Humility. In the incarnation, In all of his earthly life, Jesus never grasped at his deity for self-advancement or self-protection. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be seized. No, he emptied himself. He humbled himself to die in this way from the heights of glory to the lowest of lows. Turn with me to Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 6. This is what we deserve. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the punishment. The cup of judgment is ours. For if, we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall be, we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you might so that you by his poverty might become rich and we're not talking about cash here if you don't follow Christ this morning If you reject this Christ and you reject this gospel of salvation, however actively or passively you do it, don't. Repent. Turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That is why we proclaim this gospel as much as we can, whenever we can, but as much as these things are true and that this paragraph shows us the wonder of this gospel, that these words are meant to help us appreciate Christ more, the reason why Paul writes these things is for humility and unity within the church. Read verse 5 again. We skipped over intentionally. Have this mind among yourselves. Ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul wants us to be Christ like and self sacrificing in humility. Paul wants us to have the same mind of us not using our status, our education, our wit, our intellect, or any of the things God gives us to not use those things for ourselves but for others. This is a call to condescend and to serve and to obey the Lord even to the point of death. And let God be the one who exalts, not us exalting ourselves. The purpose of this message is to base our humility in the gospel, and this mind of humility is perhaps what characterizes Christianity the most. When Augustine was asked, what are three principles of being a Christian? Augustine, what are three principles of being a Christian? He replied, one, humility, two, humility, three, humility. To the degree that we see ourselves in humility is to the degree that we've grasped the gospel this morning. To the degree that we are filled with self-centered pride is to the degree that we miss the gospel. but to kill selfishness and pride is not an easy thing no sin is more natural no sin is more common and no sin is more deadly than pride one of the strongest characteristics of our fallen nature is selfishness which is why paul spends these verses in this beautiful poetic text here in philippians to direct our eyes to jesus christ to who he is and to what he has done and to how he did it our strongest vice our strongest sin meets the strongest remedy in jesus christ the greatest incentive to humility and unity amongst one another is a picture of the lord jesus himself and we better not take our eyes off of him you know the wrong application here this morning would be saying Tomorrow, I'm going to be less prideful. I'm going to look in the mirror and say, Dave, don't be full of yourself. And then, I'm going to return to the mirror every time someone wrongs me and count to ten before I get angry. That's not the application. The application is don't take your eyes off Jesus Christ. Don't take your eyes off Jesus Christ. Let us transition to communion. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, help us to this end. Help us by your spirit to have us not take our eyes off of you. Lord, I'm a prideful man standing before you and my brothers and sisters here preaching a sermon on pride and how destructive it is. Lord, help me, help us. Save us from our own selfishness, Lord. Bind us together in unity and love for one another. Help us to set aside the things that so easily entangle and grip us. Lord, you have been made low. You've humbled yourself. You became like us that we might accomplish unity amongst one another. And Lord, I pray that we are always mindful of that and that we have that mind amongst ourselves. Lord, as we come to the table this morning in communion, remind us of your humility and the work that you accomplished in your death. Lord, that as we take fellowship together, We realize that in one sense it was an end to our life where sin was too strong for us. And now, Lord, in your death and resurrection, we have a life where now you are too strong for our sin. Lord, we are forever grateful. And we love you. We just pray that you are exalted this morning. In your name, amen.